0: Welcome to Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast featuring one-hour conversations with elected officials and thought leaders from across the political spectrum. Tune in weekly to hear insightful and nonpartisan perspectives on how America can solve our toughest problems. Today, we'll open up the conversation to No Labels members to discuss what they think should be the top priorities for No Labels in the first hundred days of the new Biden administration and the new Congress. It will be no surprise that the new president's first task will be the containment of COVID-19. No Labels is in a unique position to help determine what comes next. Let's listen in.
1: I do wanna wanna take this opportunity to welcome all the participants uh, to to this call. Uh, Its purpose is very simple. Uh, We need your advice about the top legislative priority uh, that No Labels ought to pursue in your judgment during the first hundred days of the new Congress. Uh, Why are we doing this consultation now? Let me frame it this way. Uh, Well, first of all, for the past two decades, the beginning of a new president's first term has been the period of greatest legislative opportunity and achievement. Figuring out how best to use this window of opportunity will be the new president's uh, job. And it's also our job uh, because, for reasons I'll discuss in just a minute, uh, we too have a moment of opportunity to exercise uh, our clout on a bipartisan basis. Second, everybody knows What the new president's top priority is going to be. He has no choice. Uh, We have to figure out what to do about the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, We need a plan uh, to manage the transition from the pre-vaccine to the vaccine period. Uh, And there are a lot of things that are going right, but some things that aren't Uh, and the new president's first task is going to be fix that, but then what comes next? That's the fundamental question. There are a lot of contenders, you know, for the, to fill that what comes next space, Uh, and we may have an opportunity, a rare opportunity, to influence that in a positive way. Point number three And this is why we have such an unusual opportunity. Uh, As I think you all know, uh, when the dust settles and most of the returns were in, uh, control of both the House and the Senate uh, was balanced on a knife's edge. It's clear that Democrats will retain control of the House, but with a significantly diminished majority. You know, it could be as low as single digits, and if it's much higher than that, it won't be. If it's higher than that, it won't be much higher than that. And as you know, control of the Senate is still unsettled, undecided as of this point, and we won't know until after the January 5th runoffs uh, who will occupy those two seats from Georgia. If, If Democrats claim both, they will narrowly, they will control the Senate by the narrowest margin possible, 50-50, with the vice president breaking the tie. Uh, and if the Republicans won, win either one of those races or both, then they will retain their majority. But that, too, will be, in the best case for them, lower than it was uh, in the previous Senate. So with very close margins in both the House and the Senate, our Problem Solvers Caucus in the House, plus this new group of eight senators that No No Labels has formed more recently, uh, four Democrats and four Republicans, could hold the balance of power. They could be the pivotal group. If they can can decide on their priorities and stick together, uh, they can help drive the debate in both the House and the Senate. Here's the fourth and final point, as to why we're holding this consultation now. To be effective, and this is a point that Nancy has underscored for the past ten years, to be effective, No Labels needs to focus. We can't be all over the map. Uh, you know, if at all possible, we need to decide on a top strike strategic priority. In this case, a top legislative priority and it's the area where we will focus most of our attention. So what kind of what kind of focus are we looking for on the legislative front? First, it needs to be a top tier issue. There are too many important questions uh, on the table for us to focus on peripheral matters. It has to be one of the half a dozen issues whose resolution will really make a difference for the future of the the country. Second, no labels is most effective when we are playing on a field that most other people aren't. If the field is densely packed with people who are already working on a particular issue, our opportunity to make a big difference is very limited. But if it's a neglected but important issue, uh, we can make a big difference. And finally, we're looking for an issue where there is possible agreement across party lines on significant elements of the remedy. There are some issues that are like that and others that are inherently divisive between the parties at the threshold. And if we went for one of those, I think we would undercut our efforts from the very first. Now, I have, I have my own views on all of these questions. Uh, and if you really insist, I'll share them with you. Uh, but the main point of today's session is to hear your views. Uh, and that's what we'll do starting right now. And I assume I, I assume that I'll get a queue of questions in the chat. Is that correct? Uh, Yes,
2: anybody could just chat me if they've got a comment or a question. Um, Steve Finkelman, it looks
3: like just. All right, I think right now for me, the biggest threat, I'd say I think that I may disagree a little bit with you, Bill, because I don't think that we're as much about issues. I don't know whether we can define the issues, but I think we're a lot more about process. With the issues that are defined, we want people to work together to put the interests of the country first. and if we pick an issue we think's important but nobody else does, you know, we're not going to be as influential. but i think right now for me the biggest threat that we have is is president elect biden's call to recruit bipartisan members of congress to serve his administration. in theory he could take half of our coalition away from us. So i don't know whether we're talking to our people about this or not or because if he takes, I know he wants to take equal numbers, you know, Republicans, and Democrats, and if he takes a number of our people away, it's gonna, not, not just for me, our organizational, but also I think for the good of the working of Congress, it could have an impact, a negative impact on that. I don't think that's as much of a threat
1: as you do, but we shall see, and it's also an opportunity uh, because these these are people who will have, if they are picked, will have substantial impact on shaping and implementing uh, a presidential agenda. So that is, you know, that's a double-edged sword. Uh, but but we'll, you know, Steve, we'll just have to see whether that happens or not. But I will say that in addition to process questions, and that's that's the point of today's session. Uh, we do we do feel. The need uh, to focus on a top legislative priority, and you may believe that that won't make much of a difference. There are others who have a different different view. That's that's all I can say at this point. Okay. Uh, next in the queue is David uh, Vanier or Veneer. I wish I'm sorry I haven't pronounced the name previously.
4: David? No, please. No problem. Thank you. Um, I'm actually. I don't know if it's more of a suggestion, uh, but I'm very curious on your thoughts on the role that trade, uh, and then specifically, what I'm thinking about is the TPP uh, and the RCREP. Um and so the position that we could take, you know, which would fit both the trade interest as well as the foreign policy
3: interest vis-a-vis China.
1: Yeah. Well, that's clearly trade is is a very high profile issue. It's also it's also an issue where there are multiple voices within the incoming administration, and no clear indications of of how those internal conflicts are going are going to be resolved. Uh, and I you know I doubt very much that that president that president elect Biden. Uh, least that is my strong belief that he is the president-elect, although it's not universally shared. I doubt very much that president-elect Biden is going to lead off early with legislative init- initiatives on trade. He will obviously start discussions, you know, with the Brits, assuming they can ever figure out how to disentangle themselves from the EU, with the EU, and certainly, you know the Asian nations who got together, you know, to form a major trade area, free trade area, without us, you know, have sent a shot across our bow. Uh, You know, the previous president, if memory serves, frequently said that if we don't write the rules for the trading regime in Asia, the Chinese will. And unfortunately, you know, the previous presidents' predictions weren't always right, but this one turned out to be. So, so there's a lot there's a, there's a, a lot on the trade agenda, but I think most of it is going to be out of the executive branch rather than the Congress. That at, at least at the beginning, and it'll be some distance down the road before a Biden administration would have anything to present to the Congress for an up or down vote. Uh, I think uh, Lawrence Bender is
5: next. Hi, thank you so much. Uh, I have a, a suggestion. Uh, I, was talking to, I was talking to Frank Luntz about this, that it, who in 94, uh, they created the contract for America, right, the Republicans in this case, of course. And that created this a massive amount of stuff that got done, an enormous amount got done between the Republicans and, and Bill Clinton. And my question to you, or my thought is, whatever it is that you end up deciding, to work on as a or multiple policies, to brand it in some kind of different way, but your version of a contract for America. So that I feel like he was brilliant at whatever side of the aisle you're on, he was brilliant at branding the death tax, this, that, and the other, and it changed everything. And I just wonder if in the middle of all this, you also could come up with a term or terminology that is very brandable and sort of catches the wind of America. Uh, I don't know whether our our
1: chief strategist and frame meister in chief uh, Ryan Clancy is on this call. Yes, no. Okay, well, uh, then let me just let me just say generically uh, that we agree with you. You know, whatever whatever we choose to do. Needs to be framed in the most appealing and generally acceptable way. Details to come. Uh, we will, you know, if we use the old terminology, we'll likely create the old battle battle lines, and that's not useful. You know, when power is divided as much as it's going to be at the beginning of the next administration. So, point point taken. Uh, uh, I'm, uh, I'm still, I'm. Uh, I'm still in the market uh for some for some substantive you know chips on the table. Uh on the is- on the issues front, we've heard about process, we've heard about branding. Uh now what do we think our substantive focus should be? And I think Doug Rutherford is next.
0: Doug thank you Bill the uh, I think uh, we should consider immigration. It's obviously not a new idea, but I do think that if we got Close in the Bush administration and we seem to have polling indication that the DACA resolution would be a majority favored idea and um, I'm not sure how much other uh, uh, efforts legislative efforts going into it, so it might fill your criteria of um, one that's not overcrowded from the standpoint of other activity. I, I
1: have to I have to tell you, Doug that uh, the the argument that you just made about our top priority is, you know, is one that has some support, you know, you know, in, you know, in, inside this organization. Uh, And I happen, I happen to think that, that you're on a good track in making that suggestion. Uh, I can also tell you that the top three can, the top three contenders that have emerged are uh, immigration, infrastructure, and healthcare reform, with a particular focus on costs, prescription drugs, and other and, and other pieces of the cost puzzle. So, you've you've certainly emphasized one of what we believe to be the top, the top contenders. Uh, and uh, I'm you know I'm personally quite supportive of the arguments that you just made, uh, uh, Kelly Anderson.
6: Hi, everybody. Thank you. Um, I just, a couple of things. I, actually, there's a lot of stuff I think that you guys can focus on. First of all, I, I'm just going to respond to the first guy's question about, um, you know, having a bipartisan cabinet. I mean, if No Labels is truly about bipartisanism, we should be excited about a bipartisan cabinet, not an us versus them. So I, I thought the the question and the, the comment from him is, was against what, what uh, No Labels stands for. But that being said, a couple of things that I think we should be looking at—you um, know—the reopening of the economy. What are we going to do? How are we going to handle the COVID crisis? Because we're going through a lot of shutdowns again now. Um, again, I don't know if it comes to the the level that No Labels is on. Um, I have healthcare on there. I do believe healthcare is a, a huge issue, um, and it's it's one that's going to take quite a while for us to um, uh, be able to go through. And then I think, you know, based on some of the stuff that was happening today, I think we really have to look at, at freedom of speech, you know, justice Alita is, is worried about it too, as far as the censoring of big tech media and, you know, how are we going to preserve people's rights to have an opinion? Um, Because that's, that's gone away uh, a lot right now too. So um, I think that we need to be looking at what, what that framework is gonna look like in a social world, the social media world.
1: Thank you, Kelly. Those are very concrete and specific objections. Uh, uh, we appreciate that.
7: Uh, John Martin is next. Thank you, Bill. Um, actually, Kelly, I think that your idea about addressing the uh, uh, the potential pitfalls of the ever expanding social media world that we are living in uh, is one that hasn't generally seemed to have hit the radar very much. But, uh, my view is this is an organization that should absolutely take a position on that. Um, uh, but I, I, just had a, a more, a, a bit of a more fundamental foundational question, if you will, you know, one of the things that we have talked about in no labels is, uh, the aspiration to have one of our problem solvers become speaker as a first step in really stepping into the center ring. And given the what appears to be some level of disarray um, on the Democratic Party, who will obviously uh, hold a majority in the House, um, I posit the question of whether this may be a time for us to really make a push to have a problem solver House leader? Once again, you
1: know, a a very interesting suggestion. Uh, The information that I received as of today is that there is no intention uh, across the Democratic Caucus to challenge either the Speaker uh, or, or, or the majority leader or uh, the number three man, James Clyburn. Uh, This would be an odd time to challenge James Clyburn given the role that he played in in helping to shape the Democratic nomination process and also the the general election. Uh, I think it's generally expected that this will be the final term for all three of the people that I just mentioned, uh, who are all in their 80s. there's a lot of jost- There's a lot of jostling going on in the tier below that the big, the big three, to get into pole position uh, for the race that will begin, uh, that will begin next year for the selection of a new speaker uh, in, uh, you know, in in uh, January of 2023. Uh, so if you look at the numbers, this would be a time to flex muscles. But if you look at the politics, Uh, there's not a big appetite uh, to to shove any of the venerable three out the door during what's widely believed to be their their final term, uh, their final two-year term. Uh, And uh, uh, you may well disagree with that judgment, but my reading is that it's pretty firm throughout the Democratic caucus for one reason or another. So... uh, so yes in principle but probably not in practice but you know let's you know we ought to keep we ought to keep your observation on the front burner because for sure there's going to be a defining election you know within the democratic caucus assuming that democrats hold their majority in 2022 which is by no means a given Right? It's narrowed very significantly as a result of this election. It could disappear completely in the next one, which historically is not you know, favorable, favorable timing for a new administration. In three of the past four administrations, uh, the new president has lost the House majority in just two years after assuming office. Uh, and there's no reason to believe that that's not a serious possibility this time around. So <laughs> stay tuned.
2: Uh, uh, Carla O'Dell is next. Thank you, Bill. I had a, a, a question about strategy and then what if, and it gets at your question about what the leading issue might be. I'm not sure I buy it that that the it's a slam dunk for the next stimulus package, nor do I think it's going to be the last. We're not going to be one and done. I'm back to what Kelly said about the economy being in really, Serious shape. I'd like to see what are the issues that you think we could ride on, either this stimulus bill or the subsequent ones, which will have the most impact on the American people and the most likely uh, to be passaged by both sides as part of a stimulus bill. So, does immigration meet that category? Does health care, does re employment, which includes a lot of females who may not get hired in an infrastructure package, because uh, that's where the unemployment is, as you know. So, um, Talk to me about that what-if scenario. What could we put in this bill when it gets passed, and the following bills? We're not one and done.
1: Boy, that that is a terrific question, and I'm not going to pretend I have a crystal ball that can give you the answer to that question. But I'll I'll offer you some random thoughts. Uh, you know, first of all, the uh, you may well be right that it's not going to be one and done, but I can tell you this there's going to be a determined effort by the new administration to front load as much of what's needed as possible because, because it's really hard to jump over the Grand Canyon in two leaps. Uh, and, uh, you know, and if you get it wrong the first time and then the politics shift, you may not get another opportunity. So you know, will everything get done in the first bill? No, but there's going to be a real push to get Eighty or or ninety percent of what people think is needed done mm-hmm. uh, re, reopening the economy uh, that is not principally within the authority of the federal government right I mean we're you know we're talking about a, a federal system now that does real real work mm-hmm. and so. You know, the arena during which that, in which that's going to be hashed out is the individual states and probably the National Governors Association, which is about as bipartisan as things get these these days. And I think the most likely scenario is that the new president is going to be in very regular dialogue with the governors one-on-one but also assembled in the in the NGA. I've doing, been doing some work on the legal and constitutional issues. Even if even if the new president wanted to impose a national mask mandate, it's by no means clear that he has the constitutional authority to do so. And I could, you know, and most of the most of the issues having to do with reopening the economy are in that category, where the the states are going to be the prime movers for better for better or or worse. So I think the COVID the COVID bill is going to focus on things that are clearly national, uh, having to do with assistance that the healthcare system needs with with PPE PPE and and materials, uh, uh, with the kind of organized effort that we're going to need to move from the invention phase to the distribution phase with, with the vaccine, which will involve a lot of difficult national level choices about who goes first, uh, because we're not going to have, we're going to need just for the United States 670 million doses because they, because it, you know, e- each successful vaccination is going to require two do- two doses, uh, and and that sets aside the question of you know these international pharmaceutical country, uh, companies that will also be producing for overseas markets, uh, so you know you have. You know, you have PPE. Uh, you have the vaccine distribution with all all of those questions, and then you have the kind of assistance from the national level to individuals and states and localities that they're going to need to sustain themselves until the economy is fully reopened. And everybody knows that we're we're talking about a renewal of the PPP program. Uh, We're talking about another look at extended unemployment insurance, you know, with or without the supplementary benefits that we saw uh, that that we saw in the spring of last year. Uh, And, you know, we're going to be talking about a lot of school systems that are going to need help, financial help with testing. And also the installation of new equipment, including air filtration equipment, that's going to be needed in order to reassure parents that it's absolutely safe to send their kids back to school. So I think, I think that the package is going to be focused on those items, if I had to make a guess. And the decisions about the terms and conditions of reopening the economy will be determined by the governor's. And in some case, if governors choose to delegate that authority to smaller municipalities within within their respective states.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so that's, you know, these are my best hunches, no crystal ball. Uh, uh, Thank you. Terry Meehan is next.
8: Uh, how do I get on the
1: list? Uh, oh, I'm sorry, Pitch. Uh, just, you know, I'll put you on the list myself, and but also, also I think I think just you know chatting with Megan. Yeah. You know, but okay. But you're you're on you're on the list, and you and you're number three on the list as it now stands. Okay. Thanks. Sure. Uh, so you know we have so the queue now is Terry Meehan who's at bat, uh, Jay Minkoff who's on deck, and Pitch Johnson who will bat them both in. I hope. Uh, yeah. So Terry.
9: And, Bill, put me on your list, too, if you would. Mm-hmm. Uh, it
1: got it. And Megan, help me out here.
2: Yep. If you can just chat me, I'll, I'll, I've i got a lot of people in the queue, so I'm, I'm, I'll keep feeding them to Bill. Go ahead, Okay.
10: Bill. Terry? Yeah. The four criteria that, that, that you mentioned, uh, one, one, one of which was a neglected issue and I can't say that immigration uh, infrastructure or healthcare are neglected issues, um, although I am for fighting on those issues. Uh, one of the issues that is a neglected issue that, that I've followed closely is the issue of supplemental and, and nutritional information for pregnant women and infants. It's a five billion dollar program, and it should be double that. And if you, the polling that I have done, says there is every, it is the most. Both Dems and Republicans want to help young young, young kids. And Donald Bacon the other day said, seventy percent of the people who apply to the military are rejected because they're overweight. Or can't read at the eighth grade le- le- level. There is enough data on WIC that says those those who are on it are healthier, are cognitively much 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 stronger, do much better than they're in school, and get immunized a lot more than those who are not. And it gets lost in SNAP. So that's my two cents.
1: Well, thank you very much and I learned a lot from what you just said and I appreciate it.
4: Uh, Jay Minkoff is next. Hi Bill, Um, I'm not an economist, but I listen to economists and from what I understand and politicians and what I understand, infrastructure is very bipartisan. It's something that both uh, has bicameral support um, has a couple you know, it has a, a, a multiplier effect on the economy. It has the ability to employ a large number of unskilled labor, which we have in the economy right now. Um, it could also, they, those projects could also be fo- focused on state and local government needs, which would replace the budgetary needs of the state and local governments. So there's gonna be, could be support there as well as healthcare infrastructure, as well as green initiatives with regard to infrastructure, I think that infrastructure can be uh, massaged to address a number of the issues that we're hoping to address, particularly hit the ground running with something that's um, bipartisan and bicameral.
1: Well, I, th- I think the I think the argument you just made is, is widely shared in the congress and if i were asked to name the biggest disappointment of the past 4 years it's that you know a president who came in as a builder a developer someone who talked about infrastructure throughout his presidential campaign in 2016 wasn't able to put together a bipartisan coalition to get it done and so that's a big that's a big outstanding item and you know it's not exactly a secret that the stumbling block for, for everyone was how to pay for it. Uh, it's not a, you know, it's not a question of shaping a program. It's mainly a question of paying for the program. Uh, and so at this point, it's, it's not clear whether the appetite to overcome that impasse is as strong as it's gonna be as strong as it will need to be in order to get in order to get the job done, because as you know, we're talking about very substantial sums of money to do infrastructure at the appropriate scale. Uh, and there's rising concern, at least on one side of the aisle about spending and, and, and debt. So
4: we'll, we'll have to see, but that's clear, that's clearly a top tier are, are there any proposals with regard to how to pay for it?
1: Uh, there've been various innovative proposals uh, but, but if you have an idea, can you send them? Can you send it to us? Because frankly, we've talked in the past four years to some very great financial minds about how to do this. And we just haven't been able to get traction for creative.
4: Well, Nancy does a great job of raising money. Maybe, you know, we have her take on uh, no labels raises the money for this infrastructure, bill. $2 trillion?
1: <laughs> I don't want to question her capacity, but even that is stretching it a little bit. <laughs> okay, but th- thanks, Jay. That was very productive.
8: Uh, uh Pitch Johnson, you're up. My, my comment is almost obvious, but uh, in all this uh, talk about health care and uh, conquering the virus and uh, uh, getting us out of the present trouble, it's very important. Somebody emphasizes future problems, anticipating other endemics, or uh, and uh, so we've got to put emphasis on the future uh, prevention of future endemics. It'd be a very important issue, and not feel satisfied if we got this one conquered. Well,
1: speaking speaking personally, but not just per- personally, Pitch, you're right on. Uh, we got caught with our pants down, to be frankly. Uh, we had we had programs authorized to stockpile very large quantities of, of material, so that we wouldn't have had the panic over masks and you know and you know and PPE and you know and materials that we did in the early months of this pandemic. Uh, Congress dropped the ball, never appropriated the money. To fill that authorization that, 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 that they'd issued. And as a result, we drew down our stockpiles a decade ago and never replenished them. That is certainly a mistake we can't make again. Uh, we've also learned something, something I think very encouraging, about how to speed up, you know, speed up vaccine development. And we should certainly build that into the basic architecture of our public health system from here on
8: out. Well, let me just say quickly that this is not something that we, we, we it's important that we don't relax after we have COVID-19 and its relatives defeated. This has gotta be a, a constant issue of our society and our government to protect us from other endemics coming and having ways of spotting them and stopping them. Uh, it, it, it's, it, we all know this, but we got to make sure it's explicit.
1: Not going to get an argument, I suspect, out of anybody on this call. Uh, you're right. Thank you. Ray, Ray Alden is next.
9: It strikes me that the most long-term, medium-term problem the new president is going to face is stonewalling by the majority leader of the Senate, who should not, regardless of party affiliation, be able by himself to refuse to consider legislation that comes from the House. I don't know what procedurally it takes to correct that problem, and I'd like to know. (laughs) Well,
1: Ray, I wish I had a you know a totally persuasive answer to your question. Uh, the way the Senate of the United States has been structured for a long time, the Senate Majority Leader, whichever party he hails from, has extraordinary powers to set the agenda of of the Senate. And there are more mechanisms to address that in the House than there are at the Senate in in the Senate. And all I all I can tell you is. We have been thinking about the rules dimension of, of, this, of the Senate. I have some personal ideas, but they're not we're not there yet. Thank you. Uh Liz Sigity is next, or maybe it's Sageti.
6: I mean, basically I'm I'm echoing a couple other people's comments um, about infrastructure. I was a little puzzled even during the pandemic why we weren't trying to put people back to work by putting, you know whether at a state level or a federal level, there weren't more, uh, and there's nobody on the roads, so you wouldn't even have a traffic issue. I mean, why wasn't that something that was part of the whole, you know, maybe I'm sounding like FDR, but part of the whole pandemic recovery, employment
2: issues.
1: Uh, I'm, not, um, I'm not sure I know for sure, but I think that the, the, focus, the focus back last March and in the spring was on, you know, the issues of the moment, the things that seemed to be most urgent. Uh, and with 22 million people suddenly thrown out of work, with small businesses flat on their flat on their backs, with state and local revenues plunging, with the healthcare system in crisis, uh, at that point, at that point, the emphasis was on crisis management, uh, and You know, and even just focusing on the most urgent things created a bill so large that a lot of people got sticker shock even as they voted for it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think I, I think adding a large component for infrastructure was just not possible at that point. It wasn't fiscally possible, it wasn't psychologically possible. You can make an argument that we should have done it, but frankly, when the economy was shut down tight. I don't think I don't think anybody was very interested in in new public programs that would have to be stood up uh you know in the in the midst of that but we're in an entirely different situation now and you know there was a previous question uh uh it it may have been actually from Carla Odell uh what could be what could be added uh what could be what what could be appended to a COVID nineteen bill early in 2021, and certain aspects of an infrastructure program might be a plausible answer to that to that question. But as we discussed earlier, only if only if there's a will to solve the funding pro- problem, which so far there hasn't been. So I think I I, I think just dollars are the issue, and you know. And the answer to your question, why didn't we do it? Uh, so Jim Tozer is next. Thank
11: you. I, I'm I'm in the endorsement mode, which happens when you get on a list that runs this long. Uh, is I want to endorse the idea early on uh, that tackling the tech monopoly problem and the freedom of speech problem is one that kind of requires a centrist solution. Uh, and uh, and also needs to be faced so i think i endorse the person who suggested that and i also observe on the question of infrastructure i'm glad bill that you uh, you put into this that uh, that raising the money was part of the problem the other one is going to be the cost structure uh, which is uh, which is just like we're coming back now on healthcare to worry about the cost of healthcare the cost of infrastructure is going to be one of that because Some communities know how to do infrastructure in an efficient way and some in a not so efficient way. And this will ultimately get into whether or not they have to be all union labor, but there are going to be other regulations in there too. And if you want to get it done right, you'll have to cut through a lot of things, including environmental impact activity is the, the kind of things that slow projects up classically. If we're going to tackle infrastructure, we should decide what it is we need to do and then cut through the things to get the most of it done with the least amount of money and employing the uh, the, the most people constructively along the way that's those are my observations on our
1: well you know very shrewd observations it may interest you to know that a couple of years ago we took a good hard look as an or, at a, as an organization at the regulatory issues uh, because we noticed that it, you know, it it frequently takes up to 10 years for a major infrastructure pro, uh, program to, to hop to leap over all of the legislative hurdles and in countries like Canada and Germany that period averages two years. Uh, so we've we've looked at a package of reforms that would dramatically shorten the period of regulatory review. In part by putting the review process into order, you know, and you're putting it in one place. So instead of doing things in, in, in sequence, you can do them in parallel and really move the process along. So, you know, we absolutely agree with you about the regulatory reform dimension of, of the infrastructure issue. Uh, and I think there is growing support for that across across party lines. Uh, and certainly the the outgoing administration has focused some attention on that on that mm-hmm. issue. Uh, okay, uh, Glenn Lowenstein is next. Uh, followed by Bruce Arnault, Eric Chern, Bob Patricelli, and Barry Kramer. And I suspect that is about as much as we're going to be able to get through, but
12: maybe not. Glenn? Hey, Bill, thank you. And thank you for doing this. Uh, it's, it's been great to hear your perspective on all this. Um, I would advocate uh, what Jay started, what Carla said, what the last gentleman just said, for to highlight infrastructure. And I understand that pain is a problem. But part of the solution, part of your your criteria was a lower profile or neglected issue. And, and broadly speaking, paying for this, um, it may be a Tennessee Valley authority, public corporation. And again, I know you've spent time trying to solve it. Solving it takes willpower. And one of the things that I, people have mentioned a, a lot of the benefits of it, but one of the things that I think is a big, big benefit is the potential unification of, uh, of the nation. You know, infrastructure crosses rural and urban areas, and if no labels could take a whack at the regulatory review and take a whack at how do you fund it, 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 what you've mentioned is the willpower and bipartisanship. The bipartisanship is there. It may be a solution that um, lasts for a long time, and this may be the moment it also, um, again, I'm bipartisan, but plays to the president-elect's base in terms of jobs and unions and and one thing I would point out too is when it comes to broadband it does involve women there's a lot of women who understand technology it's not just heavy labor but it's education and it's it's technology and broadband that needs to be done so I think it's a it's a big um, challenge but I'd love to hear your feedback on if do you think it's worthwhile to take it
1: well, as I as I mentioned about midway through my remarks, it's in that very top tier of possibilities, uh, along with you know you know along with uh, immigration and 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 healthcare cost reforms, uh, and uh, you've you've made a very you've made a powerful case uh, that it deserves serious consideration as the top issue, uh, and uh, you know. You know, as I said before, it's going to require some creativity that neither side of the debate has been able to, you know, to display so far. on On the funding issue, uh, there will also be a big debate about regulatory reform because there are a lot of entrenched interests who don't particularly want to speed the process up, to put it mildly, mm-hmm. okay. and for reasons that for reasons that go back decades. Uh, To understand the current regulatory morass, Uh, as a former college professor, I'll give you a reading assignment. Uh, Robert Caro's book on Robert Moses, the great New York City builder, uh, because it was the way Moses went about doing it that triggered the contemporary movement uh, for much stricter uh, uh, regulatory review processes. And it's just grown and grown. And grown, I could go on for a very long time about this issue, Glenn. But in fairness to everybody else, uh, let me just try to deal with the last four questions. Okay, uh, thank you. Uh, Bruce Arano.
13: Uh Thanks, Bill. Uh, so I was initially going to support the infrastructure idea as well, but that's you know we've beaten that one to death. But I would say most importantly, I think we should find an issue that uh, everybody supports. Like I, I don't think we can come out with an issue that does not uh, get run to ground, uh, and I think some of the things that have been brought up so far, while they're important issues, they're they're too divisive, right? So we can't even define what freedom of speech is at the moment, unfortunately, uh, as a country, uh, we're we're likely to continue to fight uh, about uh, immigration issues. Uh, I, I think those types of things are phase two or phase three after getting one win. Uh, And I would think that the answer would be to ask the people in the caucus what you guys are willing to universally support. And whatever that is, that's the issue, right? Because with with that group, as you observed at the beginning, uh, if they all agree, they have enough votes given the slim majorities now uh, to pass almost whatever they want. Uh, so that would be my vote is pick something that that no one can debate. Well, in, you know, in this diverse
1: country of 330 million people and 435 members of the House and 100, 100 members of the Senate representing them in their various and distinct ways, I don't think you're ever going to find an issue that everybody agrees on. But, you know, you're certainly right that the problem solvers in the House, for example, have been able to get a 75% supermajority in favor of a number of, number of their proposals. So that practically speaking is a kind of threshold. Uh, the group of eight in the Senate doesn't yet have the same sorts of working rules and may never because the Senate is a very different kind of organization. But certainly if you can't get buy-in in a bipartisan Senate group, in a group of eight of you know six or seven at least, uh, you're not going to be going very far. So yes, that is one of the criteria. Uh, and because if we come up with a great idea and then the people we're counting on to carry that idea in the house and the Senate, aren't willing to pick it up, we've gotten nowhere. So absolutely. Uh, and obviously at some point we're going to have to talk to them. Uh, You know, we're having, you know, we've convened this discussion very early, you know, in order to get the kind of input that we can sift through and then begin to put in order, you know, so ultimately we we can take a proposal or two or maybe three uh to you know to our groups and find out what the traffic will bear. And frankly, I don't think anybody knows right now. Things are too unsettled. But thank you. Thank you. Uh, Okay, the final three on my list are Bob Patricelli, Eric Churn, and Barry Kramer. So, Bob, thanks for your patience.
9: Well, Bill, first of all, thanks. Thanks for actually reaching out and and asking for opinions. It's uh, it's not something you see all the time. For those who don't know me, I'm a healthcare businessman from Connecticut, but I, I had uh, two stints in the federal government in the Nixon and Ford administrations. And I've always been involved in public policy. I want to raise an issue that we haven't touched on yet, but I think is one of the most fundamental facing the country, and that's the wealth gap. You, you folks all know that uh, the top 1% of families by wealth holds 37% of the wealth. The bottom 50% of families holds 1% of the wealth. That is a recipe for political and economic instability going forward. I've been working with uh, Congressman John Larson from Connecticut on a proposal to actually address this head on. Uh, the bill is drafted. Uh, it'll be introduced uh, in several weeks. Uh, it's a very simple idea to use capitalism to save capitalism. And uh, I'd like to share it with Bill and Nancy. I'm sure Congressman Larson would be happy to let me do that and see uh, see what you think of it it's, well, it's a new idea that could be very bipartisan
1: bob i'd oh. love i'd love to see it so send it my way as soon as you can uh, and uh, you know i think i think everybody is everybody is willing to stipulate to the facts that you let off with and then the question is you know, what conclusions, what inferences can we draw from those facts that will command broad bipartisan support? And I hope you're right about this bill, because it is indeed a real real problem. And send it to me as soon as you can. I'll respond, I promise. Uh, Now we have uh, six minutes for the final two questions uh, from uh, Eric Churn and Barry Kramer.
14: Eric? Thanks, Bill. Uh, I appreciate it. Uh, I'll try to be brief uh, in light of the time. Uh, It seems to me uh, that we have, you know, uh, uh, everybody sort of operating on their own set of facts and particularly, you know, you've the left and the right operating on distinctly different sets of facts. And I think that uh, on this call, people talked a little bit about social media and that has a role. Um, My question is really, while we continue to have different sets of facts that we're all operating on, what is the real prospect for uh, for there to be real, real, meaningful uh, cooperation across the parties? Um, you know, I, I would have thought that uh, an issue like a pandemic would have been a unifying issue on which all of a sudden everyone would at least agree to a set of facts there, and even that wasn't the case. And so the again, the question is, while we all are operating under different sets of facts, what is the prospect to cooperate? And if there is not really much prospect to cooperate, what can we do about getting some form of an objective, unbiased uh, source for facts and fact checking?
1: Boy, that's a, that's a question, Eric, that goes beyond any specific piece of policy, uh, unfortunately. I will say, I, I will say this. Well, I'll say two things. First of all, you know, who can disagree with you that we're having arguments about facts that we shouldn't be having? But in addition to arguments about facts, we're having arguments about values. And those are, hard, those are harder to deal with because there are, problem, there are a lot of people who probably believe two things at once. Number one, uh, that, that they will be in less danger of catching the virus if they wear a mask and number two, it's an infringement of their personal freedom to be told to wear one. Those are not incompatible thoughts. People have people have different tolerances for risk. Uh, and I, you know, I, I heard someone say on on the radio just this morning, you know, you know, I know that I'm increasing my chances of getting ill, but I'll be damned if I can stay away from my grandchildren any longer right? And there are a lot of people who feel that way. So it's not just a question of facts, it's a question of priorities. That's the first thing I'll say. The second thing I'll say is that I have noticed when a a problem has been identified, give you an example, the fact that so many people in rural areas and in poor urban areas don't have access to broadband, reliable high-speed broadband, once a problem has been identified on a consensual basis, the issue people are less likely to draw on uh, alternative facts and more likely to look practically for solutions. And uh, you know, so that's a hope. That's a hopeful note. I am hopeful that if we can identify the suitable problem, uh, suitable kind of problem for our folks in the House and Senate to work on, and for no labels to work on. Uh, that we may be able to overcome this huge problem that you've identified, at least in a particular case, but that may be too optimistic. Can't, you know, who knows? Our last question comes from uh, Barry Kramer.
4: Barry?
15: Yeah, thank you, Bill, and uh, thank you for inviting um, opinions on this topic, and also thank you for the PowerPoints that you uh, distributed in connection with the Uh, email we all got. I found them very informative and commend them to people. Um, I think the most important issue facing our country right now is a lack of confidence in government. It's more important than any of these individual topics, not that they aren't also important. And it's why I think, and I know some others have said this, that it's just so important that we get a win, that we show that government can work, that people can be bipartisan and civil and accomplish something. So the very unfair question I have to you is of all the significant topics that we've talked about here, trade, healthcare, infrastructure, immigration, whatever, which do you think is the most likely to be, that that we could accomplish a win, that we could get something done with the highest you know the highest probability of success
1: well i'll give i'll give you my my personal judgment and that's all that's all it is and i you know you know i think i'm onto something but i cannot prove i'm right in my judgment the congress of the united states is ready across party lines to endorse an immigration package that regularizes the status of the dreamers and addresses issues of border security i think that that could get done really early, really early because there's been so much preparatory conversation about that package uh, and uh, you know i'm not i'm not sure the discussion on the other top tier issues is as far adv- has been as far advanced in the congress Uh, and enjoys so much bipartisan support among the people. So that's my personal impression. Uh, But, you know, I'm really sorry that my co-host Tom Davis couldn't be here today because, you know, he's forgotten more about the Congress of the United States than I ever knew. And his perspective, his answer to your question would have been much more meaningful than, than mine. But at any rate, you have asked the perfect concluding question, and I want to thank you and everybody else uh, for uh, you know for participating uh, and sticking with this conversation and putting so many good ideas on the table. And I can and as Megan indicated uh, in her final email to everyone, if you had questions that uh, we weren't able to get to in this very brisk one hour one hour session, where I think we worked our way through a record number of comments for one hour. Uh, send them to me, send them to her. If you send them to her, she'll send them to me. Uh, and uh, and I, promise, I promise you that I or someone, you know, a member of the No Labels tribe who's more knowledgeable on a particular question will answer you.
0: In the next Congress, No Labels' bipartisan coalition in the House and Senate could emerge as the pivotal swing block. Democrats will have an even smaller majority in the House, while party control of the Senate will not be determined until the January 5th Georgia runoffs, the majority party will have no more than between 50 and 52 seats. Implication of this new legislative math is clear. In 2021, Washington will either solve problems on a bipartisan basis, or they won't solve them at all. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels Podcast.